around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor on New Civil Engineer. I'm going to be joined in the moment by a Head of Content and Engagement, Rob Horgan, and our reporter, Catherine Kennedy, to explore the main news stories of the last month. And a bit later, Rob and I are going to be speaking to Transport for London's Managing Director of Crossrail 2, Michelle Dix, who has just announced her retirement after 21 years with the organisation. Hi, Rob. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Claire. Hi, Claire. So let's focus on some good news to kick us off. And I'm going to start with the opening of the Northern Line extension. The new stations at Nine Elms and Battersea Power Station, along with three kilometres of new tunnels, were officially opened to the public earlier this month, and I got to have a ride through the tunnels ahead of the opening too. I know I'm a big kid when it comes to new infrastructure, but what really made this visit lovely, and it's not just because it's my first for 18 months, was the real excitement of the team who showed us round. They were really proud of what they'd achieved, and that came through loud and clear from Transport for London's project director, Martin Gosling. Well, three kilometres of new tunnels and two stations might sound quite simple. It was far from it. Most of the 1.26 billion funding is coming from private investment through increased business rates and or fees from developers. And it was the developer aspect that created the challenge with changes to the oversight development of Battersea. Mm, what was the implication of those changes in terms of time and cost? Well, TfL has been quite coy about the amount of additional costs around that and who will bear the brunt of it. But on the engineering design of the station box, it called for a complete rethink. The loads being imposed on the station box and the grid that which they were applied over completely changed. And that meant that for overall Langer Rourke, the contractor, flow was then more simply known, had to switch from a precast solution to a cast in situ diaphragm wall approach for, to build the box. But despite that, the new link is only opening nine months later than planned, which I think is quite an achievement, really. Don't really know about the cost, can't comment on that at the moment. At the other end of the line, Flow had to build a step plate junction around the existing Northern Line tunnel at Kennington, which effectively saw them tunnelling around the operational tunnels before breaking through into Form 1 tunnel, which was under a blockade. There were no running tunnels at that point, of running trains. But there was also restricted space for the shafts that they had to squeeze into sight. So it's quite a challenge at that end. And the Northern Line station, I think, has got a couple of cool claims to fame as well. The two stations are the first new ones to open on the Northern Line in 80 years. And Battersea is the biggest track crossover in the whole of the London Underground Network. I got a tiny glimpse of that when we had the ride through as well. Yeah, that's cool. And also really interesting about that funding model. So could that be used elsewhere, do you think? Yeah, I put that question to Martin Gosling when we were on site and he said that all future projects should consider it. And he suggested that it might be the way forward for the Bakerloo extension too at some point in the future. He said... The benefit of it was the approach gave him funding certainty up to £1 billion. And he told me that few projects have certainty of that kind. And that really helped the team when it came to getting the work started. So that's one project finished. And we've had some other good news to the industry in the last month, too, in the form of the Infrastructure Projects Authority's £650 billion project pipeline. 
its biggest figure ever put against that pipeline. And the 528 projects listed on it are going to be delivered over the next 10 years. There have been some questions raised about the projects on that list, haven't there, Rob? Uh, yes, there have. Uh, and I'm sure it will come as no surprise to anyone to hear that, um, that it's the major road building projects which have caused somewhat of a stir. If you look at the pipeline and break it down by contract value, the four biggest contracts all relate to road jobs. And in total, 12 road building contracts worth £13.23 are included in the pipeline. These include main work contracts for the usual controversial suspects, such as the Stonehenge Tunnel and Lower Thames Crossing. And in response, campaigners have accused the government of being arrogant, considering neither of those schemes currently has planning permission And with the recent High Court decision, which effectively quashed the Stonehenge Tunnel Development Consent Order on environmental grounds. I spoke to the Infrastructure Project Authority's Chief Executive, Nick Smallwood, about that. And he he said about the carbon net zero, he he said he doesn't believe that new roads have to be inconsistent with net zero. He said, you know, cars will still, or electric cars will still need roads to run on. But he said the industry needs to communicate the system of systems approach and think more about the community benefits, not just where the project's being delivered, but the national impact, as well as the regional and local impact of investment. And there's been controversy as well, I think, around the value of the projects on the list and whether the Infrastructure Projects Authority has kind of overvalued the pipeline. Yeah, that's right. Again, and and for me, I'd say this is the bigger issue than... Um, the sort of environmental concerns around roads. Obviously, I'm not downplaying environmental concerns about road building, but this is a contracts pipeline. And so until policy has changed, I think it's only right that the contracts relating to projects such as Stonehenge Tunnel and, and Lower Thames Crossing are included. What what I don't think is right is the, the massive multi-million pound contract discrepancies between the government's figures and the actual contract valuations. So just to give a few examples, if, uh, if our listeners haven't picked up on this, is but for example, the main works contract for the Lower Thames crossing is listed in the government's construction pipeline at being worth £4 billion. That's £1.7 billion above the contract value when National Highways last announced its shortlist in April. So we're not speaking a small difference there. I mean, it's a considerable... That's pretty big. Yeah, it's pretty huge. And, you know, similar story on the Stonehenge Tunnel. The government lists the main works contract at £2 billion, which is £750 million more than National Highways has it currently listed at, and £300 million more than the entire scheme is supposed to to cost when you factor in enabling works and, and other contracts on the scheme. Uh, and it's not just on road projects. There are also multi-million pound value discrepancies with several high-speed two contracts relating to Birmingham's interchange station, track installation and ground investigation works. These sort of go both ways for HS2. Some contracts, for example, the ground investigation work contract has been uh, undervalued or it appears to have been undervalued in the government's uh, pipeline. What's actually gone on there, we're not entirely sure. Uh, Both HS2, LTD and National Highways have confirmed to us that their contract valuations have not changed and that, well, they've stopped short of saying that it's a mistake by the government, but senior figures at both organisations have effectively told me that the government's figures are wrong. Um, Although, of course, nobody's going to go on the record and, and bite the hand that feeds them. So it's left to us to say it's clearly wrong. 
That just feels very weird that government have got it so wrong, doesn't it? Hopefully those cost issues will get ironed out soon and it doesn't detract from the other new aspect that the project pipeline's delivered, and that's the Transforming Infrastructure Performance, or TIP for short, roadmap. Catherine, what is the roadmap and what's it aiming to deliver? Yeah, so the the roadmap, basically, the government sets out how it plans to transform infrastructure delivery and performance. So um, it kind of describes this vision where in the future, key societal outcomes will be prioritised and then modern digital approaches and technologies and improved delivery models will be used to achieve those outcomes. So the roadmap, it includes five focus areas and they're delivering new economic infrastructure, place-based regeneration and delivery, addressing the need for social infrastructure using a platform approach, retrofitting existing buildings to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, and then optimising the performance of the existing built environment. So it sounds like a new approach and kind of a lot of tangible, practical, specific um, ways that it'll be achieved as well. Mm, it's going to be interesting to see how how that roadmap changes project delivery. But let's come back to current projects and a story we've been following for a while, which is smart motorways. Catherine, as our, our resident expert on <laughs> everything smart motorways, I believe you've been speaking to the RAC recently and they've pitched an interesting solution uh, to address safety concerns around smart motorways. Can you give us a bit of detail on that? Yeah, so they've come up with something that I don't think has really been said before. Um, basically, their head of roads policy, Nicholas Lies, says that currently the government is faced with this choice between either rolling out all lane running smart motorways, which is currently what is happening, or reinstating the hard shoulder, which would improve safety but you'd lose the capacity benefits that National Highways says the smart motorways provide. But the RIC have kind of suggested this third option, which is to think about dynamic hard shoulder schemes again. And I think those are mostly being scrapped um, and not really considered as an option at the minute. But they basically open the hard shoulder to traffic at busy times of the day. Um, So the RIC says that that type of scheme could be made the new standard because they would still offer people somewhere to stop away from live traffic, but potentially accommodate more traffic at busy times. So that's an option that hasn't really been considered. And as well, I think the technology that's been installed for all lane running smart motorways could still be used on those dynamic hard shoulder schemes, which the RIC says would would make them even safer. And potentially all you would need to do is repaint the hard shoulder line, add some additional gantry signs. So it's an interesting one um, and just a different option, I suppose. The ability of the civil engineering industry to come think laterally about problems and collaborate to come up with alternative ideas is one of the things that I really love about this sector. So it'd be interesting to see where that goes. We've run quite a few news stories in the last month on industry innovations, and I think it'd be quite interesting to explore some of our favourites from the last month. Catherine, I saw you've been writing about one of my other favourite subjects, landslides, but it was linked to fungi, and that is not a combination I could have predicted. What was that all about? An unusual combination, yeah. So it's a university of 
Strathclyde Research Project, which is looking at the role of fungi in helping to prevent landslips. So the study is exploring the use of fungi and its properties in strengthening soil and reducing the infiltration of rainwater, which is obviously a common cause of of landslips. So it will use fungi and soil collected from the UK and Italy is the plan, I think, um, to understand how the growth of different species can be controlled to improve the engineering performance of natural soils. So it's got uh, UK research and innovation funding for the project and it'll be interesting to see what the findings are. Yeah, follow that one, definitely. So sticking with the geotechnical side of things, I've written a couple of interesting tunnel innovation stories in this last month. One's already in use on a mine in Mexico and the other is a concept demonstrated at Elon Musk's Not A Boring competition in the US this month. The Mexican one is a new tunnel boring machine developed by Robbins to drive a square section tunnel through hard rock. I've seen square TPMs in soft ground before, but I think it's a world first when it comes to hard rock. Robin said that without the TBM, exploiting other parts of the silver mine might not have been economically viable, um, particularly if they'd be used drill and blast. It's much faster to use the TBM, and the square section means that you can run vehicles on it straight away. And it worked with the mine operator to develop the solution. And it says the application could have could be used on civil engineering projects as well, which I think would be quite interesting to see that one coming through. The boring competition innovation was for a TBM that uses rapid hardening special polymer mix to 3D print the tunnel lining as the TBM progresses, which I think is quite unusual and good use of 3D printing. And it's the brainchild of Swiss Loop Tunneling from ETH Zurich, another university. The Groundhog Alpha TBM, which is a concept size machine at the moment, came second in the competition after driving an 18 metre long tunnel, but it won the innovation award. And the team are now looking to develop the technology to drive a larger diameter tunnel to see if it could actually become commercially viable. I think energy is another area where we're seeing a lot of interesting innovations coming through. This month, I've reported on Atkins being appointed by Whitetail Clean Energy to provide engineering support to a proposed 300 megawatt power plant that will capture and store its carbon emissions in Teesside. The plant, which uses NetPower's technology, can bust natural gas with oxygen rather than air and uses supercritical CO2 as a working fluid to drive the turbine instead of steam. As a result, nearly all the air emissions, including the traditional pollutants and CO2, are eliminated, and pipeline quality CO2 is produced that can be captured and stored offshore. So apparently that that will be a lot better. I'm looking forward to following that one as it develops. But there's been another world first in the energy sector as well, hasn't there, Rob? There sure has, and it's caused a lot of excitement. Uh, The world's first T-shaped electricity pylon has been erected in Somerset as part of the National Grid's £900 million Hinkley Point C connection project. Built by Balfour Beattie, it's the first new pylon designed to be implemented in Britain for nearly a century. So just shows you how rare that these things uh, have changed in the, well, in the last hundred years. But in total, there'll be 116 new T-pylons erected in Somerset along a 57-kilometre route. And the revolutionary pylons are 35 metres tall, which is around a third shorter than traditional high-voltage pylons, and they have a smaller ground footprint as well. So that's the sort of main benefit, I guess, is the impact on environment and uh, on our, our landscapes. Yeah, it's good to see carbon and that net zero drive actually leading to lots of innovation. 
And this month we've reported as well on Scottish Waters Partnership with Forestry and Land Scotland to turn a lock, which is used as a reservoir, into a carbon sink. So the plan is for this 12 kilometre long lock, which actually it supplies water to, um, I think, 1.3 million people in, in the greater Glasgow area. The plan is to use the surrounding land to plant more trees, which would then soak up emissions in the area. So I think there's 9,000 hectares of land and there are plans to really maximise the biodiversity benefits of around 5,000 hectares of that. Um, so, yeah, they'll, they'll be trying to lock up the greenhouse gases and make sure that visitors and communities actually still get this nice benefits of the the good natural environment in the area as well. So it's an interesting interesting use of of space and land and I think there's already um there's already work there to to protect and plant in the ancient woodland so it's kind of building on that as well. Mm. And I guess carbon busting innovations is something we're seeing more and more of um especially as we we lead up to COP26 now. And uh, we've started seeing that in the materials sector as well. And, and this month, we've seen national highways use asphalt containing graphene for the first time. It's being trialled on the A1 in, in Northumberland and is, is being dubbed a world first. Uh, and basically, it's as well as being more carbon friendly, it's also looking to see whether it will pr- prolong the lifespan of the, of the road pavement, which, of course helps in terms of not having to dig the road up as often and and that trial runs until November so we'll keep a keen eye out on to see the results of that we've obviously all heard about the the wonders of graphene for many years now so it's nice to see it actually being trialed in some sort of large-scale projects yeah because I think we saw world first it's being used in concrete earlier this year so it's interesting to see it now coming through in asphalt Mm. I think there'll be some interesting stories to follow there there's some, certainly some interesting stories coming through. And I think these kinds of stories are the ones I really enjoy writing about. And I think our listeners and readers enjoy those too. On the subject of enjoying your job, let's move on to our interview and talk to someone who has really enjoyed her job. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems, with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective. So now it's time to welcome this episode's special guest, Michelle Dix. And something new for the podcast as well, our first retirement party. But before we get on to her own reflections around transport infrastructure and her role as Managing Director of Crossrail 2, let's take a look back at Michelle's career. Michelle started her career at the Greater London Council after gaining her civil engineering degree and completing her PhD in transport and land use planning. She spent 15 years in the private sector with Halcrow Fox, becoming the board director for urban transport before joining Transport for London in 2000 as director of congestion charge on a job share basis with Malcolm Murray Clark. They implemented the central London scheme and the western extension and developed the low emission zone. They then jointly took on the role of managing director of planning in 2007. 
After Malka's retirement, Michelle continued to lead TfL's strategic thinking on future transport needs in London, testing and challenging options, providing clear direction on appropriate transport solutions for the future. She led the development of many major schemes, including the Ultra Low Emission Zone, Northern Line Extension, Sutton Tramlink, Bakerloo Line Extension, Barking Riverside Extension, New Airport for London, Silvertown Tunnel, the Cable Car and of course Crossrail 2. In 2015, Michelle was appointed as the Managing Director of Crossrail 2 to develop it further and gain funding and powers for it. She led the engineering design, case making, stakeholder engagement, commercial and financial work, gaining support for the scheme until Covid struck. TfL's current financial position has meant the scheme is now paused and Michelle has decided that now is the time to retire from the role. So welcome Michelle and congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. (laughs) So before we come on to talk about your most recent role, I think it'd be really good to explore how you came to reach that position and what inspired you to pursue a career in civil engineering. What was it that initially attracted you to the industry? Uh, Well, I went to a girls' grammar school and I loved uh, physics and science and stuff like that. But I also liked art and being creative. And we did actually have a, um, a really good careers person who came into the school and uh, suggested that given the things I liked, civil engineering might be something to consider. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. Um, No one in the school before had done civil engineering. There wasn't anyone in my family involved in it, but it just sort of seemed to tick all the boxes that I was interested in. So that was it. I went off to Leeds and did it and really enjoyed it. Mm. And were you always uh, most interested in transport or were there other areas of civil engineering that sort of interested you early on? Well, well, I liked all the things I did um, at Leeds. I liked all the topics. But then in in the final year, when I did traffic engineering, somehow I was attracted to that because you're dealing with that on a day-to-day basis as a member of the public. And my dad had as much an opinion about what to do as I did. So, you know, it's obviously something that people are very interested in. Um, Hence, I did the the PhD because I wanted to do more about sort of like um, traffic, understanding the social impacts of transport, land use, and all the rest of it. Mm. And you've been at TfL for, for more than two decades. Uh, 20, how... 21 years. 21, 21 years. Uh, and my retirement date is 21 years from when I started. To the day? Yes. Wow, look at that. <laughs> Very well worked out. <laughs> so so over those 21 years, how has the organisation changed um, during that time? Uh, the organisation has changed hugely over that time, um, particularly in terms of the diversity of the organisation. I think I think the industry has changed even more over the 45 years that I've been in it. Um, and I think it's worth sometimes just looking back on what's happened in the industry, particularly if I, if I think back to our GLC days, we didn't have desktop computers. We didn't have things that you could type things readily on. Um, we had to sort of like type cards and go down to a mainframe place and stick all our cards in and you know a few few days later you might get an answer if you had a letter in from a stakeholder you'd had to like write it out take it to the typing pool two weeks later you'd get an answer so so the world has changed enormously um in 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 that time particularly in terms of the technology uh changes but come come to like 2000 when i joined tfl we did have computers um that were more readily available but the thing that was sort of like different then to now is actually, I think, sort of like the representation of uh, particularly transport um, people and engineers within the organisation. That's that's changed remarkably, particularly in the last decade. Mm. For, for the better, I, I, I assume you oh, agree. Ab- absolutely, because the more diverse and inclusive we are, the more sort of like varied thought that we have in terms of how to solve problems. 
And, and certainly when I first became a member of Exco, it was much more male-dominated um, than it is now. And, and I'm, I'm not saying it's groupthink, but sort of at my leaving do the other day, Peter Hendy said, you were always the one who said something different, Michelle. Um, now, it might be just because I'm an awkward person. I don't know, but it just that's what I thought. Um, so, so having diversity of thought is really, really good, I think, because it might help you get to a better answer. Do you think the wider industry needs to evolve further, though, when it comes to that? Uh, yes, um, I think in terms of uh, diversity, it has to do more in terms of attracting more people from different ethnic backgrounds, particularly into senior roles. So I think TfL, in terms of representation of women in senior roles, has got a lot, lot better in the past five years, even um, in terms of representation, which is great. But I think you know, there's much more scope for sort of like becoming more diverse over a broader spectrum of people. Mm, very interesting. Uh, changing tack a little bit, Claire mentioned a sort of glittering list of major projects that you've worked on during your time uh, at TfL in particular. Um, can you can you run us through some of them? Which ones did you enjoy the most? Which ones were the most challenging and 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 that and why? There's, there's two that sort of stand out for different reasons. Um, one is obviously the congestion charge because uh, that's something that I'd first started work on when I was at the GLC. We didn't call it congestion charge then, we called it an area toll uh, for central London. And it didn't get anywhere in, in, in the 70s. But at Halcro, I was involved in Rocal. I was the project director for Rocal, which is the road user charging study for London uh, that was done for the government. And we basically recommended a, a £5 uh, charge for central London and that any, any new mayor, because the new mayoralty was being um, established, that they used the powers that the, uh, the GLA Act gave them to actually put a congestion charging scheme in. So when Ken Livingstone um, became mayor and said that he would... Um, put the congestion charging scheme in and then advertised for a job for someone to actually put it in. I thought, yep, that's what I really want to do. I'd like to sort of like see the, you know, the beginning of, of the work done back in the 70s come to fruition finally. It was a full-time job though. Uh, it was a 24-7 job. I'd got two kids. I had been part-time at Halcrow, but I couldn't do that job part-time. So I persuaded Malcolm, who I'd sat with at GLC on the same desk, um, when we were when we were sort of like graduates, and persuaded him that he'd want to do it as well, so we we applied as a job share, and obviously in those days job shares weren't encouraged or even advertised, uh, but we just like pretended we were one person, <laughs> and and put in the application, and uh, we got it. So 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 that in itself was like a huge achievement. But then to to be able to do the congestion charging scheme, which involved getting the powers doing the detailed design, setting up the operational system, even things like specifying the, the colour of the suit that the comedian who'd be doing the advertising for promoting congestion charging would wear. were all <laughs> exciting things as part of the project. But the, but the other thing was the fact that increasingly, as we got closer to delivering the scheme, more and more people didn't want it. You know, there was more and more sort of like negative thoughts about it not going to, to work. But we genuinely believed it would work and all the analysis that we'd undertaken demonstrated it would work. So sitting there on day one, uh, you know, early in the morning, waiting to see what happened, it was an absolute joy to see nothing happened. <laughs> in a sense, nothing was there. So it had worked, 
Um, so I, that, that has to be number one. I found that really fascinating because I was working as news editor and transportation professional at the time when that came in. Yeah. So it's like following that story was great. I really enjoyed covering that. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was, it has to, it has to be a highlight. And I say, so like doing it as a job share was a highlight because it was quite pressurised and with increasing people not liking it, having someone to sort of share that with all the time. I mean, my husband would have been bored stiff of me coming home every night saying, oh, God, it's so awful. But Malcolm was experiencing the same things. Mm. And therefore, it was, it was actually perfect to have a job share in delivering that. Um, so congestion charging, absolutely. The other highlight, and people won't agree with me on this, but I will say so, is the cable car. I love the cable car because it was cheap. It was paid for. It was quick. It was the quickest thing we've ever sort of like developed and delivered. And like it or not, it runs across the river. It's a, it's a, it's a really attractive piece of infrastructure and it actually provides resilience to the Greenwich Peninsula. Mm. You've managed to pick out two projects that stand out in my career as well because I remember covering the congestion charge on cable car was the first site visit I did when I became editor on ground engineering and that was really fascinating going and seeing that and like the, the challenges of delivering that. So talking about projects, I guess is a good point to bring us on to Crossrail too and talk about that. So how do you feel about the project being paused? Uh, it was inevitable when the start of COVID um, occurred. I mean, we, we've been trying to get uh, Crossrail 2 over the line, um, particularly with the government, um, for the past for like uh, five years. And in 2019, we submitted our fifth strategic outline business case and we got like, a really lovely letter back from the DFT saying what a brilliant case it was. So I thought, yeah. You know, this is it. Uh, we can, we can, we can move forward now. Unfortunately, just after that, I, I actually had a cardiac arrest, uh, just completely out of the blue because I'm fit and healthy. I'm a bit like a footballer. You know, I just fell over. Um, but sort of like whilst I was in there, my husband said, "Well, this is the time for you to retire." I said, "No, no, because we're going to get Crossfell to over the line. I'm going back to work, and we're going to get it done." Um, and it all seemed really positive, and then COVID struck. And obviously, uh, a key thing in taking uh, Crossrail 2 forward was the financial deal. Uh, TfL being able to pay 50% of the scheme, not just to like post the event and paying the government back, but actually putting our money in up front. And with, with our financial position, loss of income, you all know, you know the, the, the story of that. There's no way that we could take Crossrail 2 forward, uh, nor, nor, nor the BLE, which is the other major scheme that we are promoting um, in the current circumstances so it was obvious to me that, you know, that was going to be the case. So as soon as COVID started and before people moved away and you lost the knowledge, what we did was uh, we, we made Crossrail 2 good. So all the work we'd ever done, we digitised and put in what I call a Crossrail 2 box so that it's all there in the box. If anyone wants to come along and find out, you know, what was the design here? What was the assumptions behind that? What was the case about this? It's all in the box so it can be readily picked up. And it's to do that whilst you still had people engaged. And if you'd waited for, you know, the, the final answer about it was going to be paused and you'd lost that expertise, then we wouldn't be able to put all that stuff in the Crossrail 2 made it good box. So it's there now, ready to pick up when, when someone's got the money to do so. And it's not because it's not needed. It's just it's not a priority at this moment, um, but it'll be needed in the future and it's there to pick up for someone to take forward. Mm. And obviously COVID sort of derailed everything, but what were the sort of main challenges in getting the business case to, to where it was sort of in, in 2019 where everything looked, looked like it was on the right path? Uh, the, ma the main challenge was one of affordability. 
Um, so if you just looked at the business case in terms of, you know, it costs X, what's it going to deliver? Yes, it had a very good case. But that that amount of money was a lot of money, particularly since the government wanted to invest, obviously, in other parts of the country. And they've got a finite amount of money. So it was the affordability aspect. And one of the things that we were looking at is whether or not you could phase the delivery of the scheme and therefore, you know, implement one part and then implement another part at a later stage. So, so we, we had done work in terms of looking at that. Um, and we'd also done a lot of work in terms of, you know, how could you reduce the costs in terms of more efficient delivery, learnings from Crossrail itself about more efficient delivery, utilising those, those approaches to, to sort of like reduce the cost of the scheme, but I say also look at how you could phase delivery of the scheme. So do you think some of those cost challenges and phasing challenges could be overcome in the future? Well, I think we sort of did... Um, we, we came up with a sort of a proposal to overcome them. That's why I was so excited uh, that we sort of got there. And, and if you look back on Crossrail 2, we, we've had, we, we had a really good start with, with the sort of the go-ahead from government to support us with the agreement to 160 million 50-50 split between government and, and the mayoralty to develop the scheme, et cetera, et cetera. And then various sort of like hurdles were put in our way, not deliberately, but occurred like, uh, elections, changes of government, changes of people responsible, that the need to um, ensure that the uh, the sort of like the Northern Powerhouse Rail was developed. I'm not saying that that's not that's that's a problem, but as soon as you've got more things that you want to do, then your priorities have to be sort of like shared. Um, but lots of things happened over those five years, so to get over that last hurdle was, you know, um, we all we all feel that we made it, even though we didn't quite make it. <laughs> Yeah. So you briefly touched on it uh, a moment ago about um, Crossrail One or Crossrail. What what lessons did you learn from Crossrail in in developing the business case for Crossrail Two? And and if someone was to pick up your uh, Crossrail Two box in the future, what what lessons can they take from from the delivery of of Crossrail? Uh, there's lot, lots of lessons learned um, from Crossrail. One, one of the, like, the, the immediate ones learned was to actually look at the development of Crossrail itself and the development opportunities that you wanted to open up at the same time. So don't just design a railway where you put the depot in the most sort of like um, optimum place, but the depot's exactly where you'd need some development to take place. So, so, so if, if, if you're designing a railway that's there to support growth, as well as you know, um, to to deal with existing capacity problems, make sure you're designing it with the needs of that development in mind at the same time. So look at the land uses um, and look at the operational issues alongside those land use uh, discussions. Make sure the sort of like the stations open on both sides of the railway. You know, th- think things things like that. Um, so that was that was one lesson. The other one was to sort of like to to work with the operational teams from day one, in terms of how is this thing going to operate. Um, particularly because it's a railway that is network rail and TfL owned. So if you think to like the core, the that the main central tunnel is on TfL um, properties with TfL stations. But as soon as you come out from Wimbledon and Tottenham Hale, then you're on the network rail lines. So it's working with network rail about how it's going to operate because that has an impact in terms of the design. Um, also, it's like uh, lessons learnt about sort of planning in detail the system side um, up front because we all know uh, Crossrail was a brilliant sort of um, engineering project um, but it's making sure that the system side is actually taken into the design up front. 
Other things that we've learned are things like, you know, off-site construction that, that can play a big role in making it more efficiently delivered, whether or not all the things that you, whether or not the thing um, needs to be specified as much as, as, as potentially things were, but also trying to have much more uniformity in terms of standards, you know, have all the doorknobs the same. Don't, don't introduce special ones in different places. Just simplify everything, just make it more uniform, and then it'll be cheaper. So you've touched on lots of lessons that can be learned for other projects there as well. But more generally, what key challenges do you think are ahead for other urban transport projects and, you know, in terms of planning and delivery? Well, I think, I think one of the biggest challenges for everybody is money. <laughs> you know, we, we had a challenge with money, but certainly going forward, there are big challenges with, with money and, and funding things. And, and even within TfL, uh, we've got lots of ambitions about new schemes that we want to do, but we have to prioritise our spend going forward on ensuring that we can maintain and renew the system that we've got to make sure that, that stays safe and reliable and, and, and make the most of the existing infrastructure that we've got in the first instance. So to continue to, to upgrade the, the tube um, with, with new trains, which will provide more capacity, and also with new signalling, which will provide sort of like additional uh, further capacity. So, 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 so first lesson, I think, given where we are, just making the most of what we've got um, to enhance what 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 system can deliver, alongside and it, I think it is important making sure that we are um, supporting access to uh, whether it's railway journeys or direct journeys for active travel. So much more investment in terms of potentially smaller schemes, um, which will encourage more walking, cycling, and obviously promoting the bus network. Mm. And when you uh, think back to the start of the, your career and the, the challenges that you faced as an engineer, how does that differ to the challenges engineers face today? Um, I, th- I think the, the the objectives are slightly... Well, they, they are different in the sense that sort of... Um, we might have been looking for, you know, improved journey times and enlarged capacity and environmental impacts was like an impact assessment rather than something that you were seeking directly to improve. Um, whereas, fortunately, you know, the, the, the priorities have changed. Um, I remember when we were developing congestion charging, we were obviously a, an objective was to improve air quality. CO2 reduction was, was an outcome, but it was to improve air quality. And when we developed um, the ultra-low emission zone, so I did the scheme order for the ultra-low emission zone, it was all about air quality because of the direct impacts of poor air quality on people's health. But CO2 reduction was just not sort of prioritised in the same way, even though people were telling us, you know, all over the world, you've got to do something, you've got to do something. Now people realise and therefore, I think so like engineers today have got the challenge of actually decarbonisation, which wasn't a challenge that we had 40 years ago or even 20 years ago. So there's, there's, a, there's a big challenge there in terms of um, not just looking at, say, from a transport point of view, you being able to run trains that are sort of like uh, zero carbon fuels. Uh, but how do you provide the infrastructure to support those that is sort of zero carbon or low carbon? And I think that is a challenge for us as an industry. It's great to see what Rachel Skinner's been doing in terms of her presidency in, in, in raising that awareness. And I think that is one of the biggest challenges that we have got, as well as finding some money. <laughs> <laughs> Always back to the money. So what advice would you give to anyone who's just starting out their career in the industry? 
Well, my advice is is I, I don't think I could have had a better um, career. I've 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 had I've had a absolutely fantastic sort of forty five years. I've really enjoyed every part. I think the TFL bit has been the best, and I think if you've got any interest in in engineering, go for it. You know, it's really, really rewarding. And it's just so, I mean, it's so diverse. I, I came out as a sort of like a transport um, person. But, you know, friend, friends from the past have come out completely different in terms of what they are doing, but they find it equally rewarding. Because if you can, if you can sort of like solve a problem, come up with a solution, see it built or made or whatever it is, and, and know that you're having a direct impact on people's lives, it's just incredibly rewarding. Uh, one of one of the things that sort of um, I'm sort of looking forward to in retirement, and I didn't know this when I um, when I announced to the family I was retiring at last, and they said hurrah um, because it's a bit late. Is my daughter said great, I'm I'm expecting mum, and uh, so so uh, you'll have retired just in time to you know help babysit etc etc. <laughs> so so I know I'm getting a grandson. So so what I will be doing is taking my grandson on the cable car on the Northern Line extension, back to bank, back to the Riverside um, extension, if we've got a Bakerloo or a Crossrail too, just to show them what uh, an amazing job you can have um, if you go into engineering. And you have to go the Docklands Light Railway and pretend you're driving the train. That's what I do with my son. He adores that. Oh, do you? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. The doc- yeah. All, 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 that, all that stuff, all that stuff is brilliant. Plus, you're, you do. I mean, it's an industry, certainly with TfL, you just work with pretty amazing committed people who, who all want to do the same thing. And certainly, you know, uh, working for TfL has been a, a real joy. Everyone, everyone's got this like common goal of wanting to work for London and make it better. And, and in, in that role, you can, actually, you can actually do that. You can deliver it. So, I mean, you talked there about enjoying everything you've done, but looking back, are there mistakes or incidents in your career that you feel others could learn from? Um, I'm sure there are. It's just I can't think of any. Because one of the things people people say to me is sort of like, why did you choose? Why did you choose make the choices you made during your career? And I've always made the choice on the basis of would I enjoy it? And I've said to people, don't obsess yourself about becoming, you know, a a director or so don't don't obsess yourself about what the label is of your job just think about whether or not it's a job you'd enjoy because if you enjoy it then you'll do it well and if you do it well you'll get promoted so that's always been my approach to to work to do something that I really enjoy and then if I enjoyed it I just happened to then got promoted so um and I know when I took the congestion charging job I was the I was the board director for urban transport at Halco Fox, and people said, "Why have you taken that job?" You know, it, it's it's only called at the time it was advertised. It was called an associate director, and then it became a director. Why, why have you Why have you gone from a board director to an associate director? I said, "Because I want to do that job, but, and that's what I wanted to do, and I loved it." And then we were, you know, within months we were the director, and then we became obviously the managing director of planning. So. Not obsess yourself by titles and promotion, but but look for things or take up things that you know that you'll enjoy. I'm sure others might be able to say you did that that wrong, Michelle. You did that <laughs> wrong, but um, this moment in time, nothing comes to mind straight away. Sorry, they're not on this interview. It's down to you what you think. Oh, actually, no, no, I did. No, I have done something that not that I regret doing, but when I was at Leeds, 
um, and I did the PhD, I thought it would be really good to be a lecturer. But a good lecturer is one that's worked. So I thought, so like, so when I, when I get a job, I need a job that, you know, gives, gives, gives me the sort of like knowledge and skills of, of, of transport planning and, and engineering. So I went to the GLC and did that. And at, and at night, on a Wednesday night, I decided I'd take up a part-time lecturing job to see what lecturing was like. And I, and I, and I had a moped, a Yamaha 75. So I'd go from the GLC to Woolwich, to, uh, to the Polytechnic there, and I'd teach a traffic engineering course. And then I'd leave that and go through the Blackwall Tunnel home to Leighton. That course, teaching it, was so unrewarding because I don't think any of the students wanted to be in that class. Not that I was awful, but sort of it was, it was just they didn't want to be there. And you'd put all your effort into, um, you know, trying to make the lecture uh, interesting. And at the end of it, I thought, I put all the effort into that and you get nothing back. I put all the effort into my work at the GLC. You get huge amounts back. I thought, I'm not being a lecturer. I'm just going to stay working. So, so you're not planning to become a visiting professor now you're retiring them? I am a visiting professor, oh, you actually. Are. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot that. So you changed your mind about that part of it? Well, I, well, I, th- I think sort of, um, well, may, may, maybe, maybe the students I taught at Thames Pol- well, wherever I taught them, <laughs> weren't, weren't sort of like as interested because I have done uh, uh, visiting lectureships uh, at UCL and people seem interested. But, I, but, I, but I've got much more out of work work. Not that lecturing's not work, but sort of like um, that was the thing that made me decide, no, I'll stay doing the sort of work I was doing. Mm. And, and looking back sort of over your entire career, not just at CFL, um, what, what are you most proud of and, and why? Obviously, you've mentioned the, the congestion charge already, but is there anything else sort of that comes to mind? Uh, little, little things. I mean, uh, that Halcro, I was proud of uh, taking the job, knowing that they're an international consultancy and saying at my interview, um, I'll take the job as long as I'm home for tea. And they agreed to that. And that meant they couldn't send me abroad, you know, for six months at a time doing stuff. But that's that's what I'd said at the interview. And people said, why is it you don't have to go, Michelle? And I said, because I made it a condition that I had to be home for tea. So that's so I'm sort of proud of that. Um, in terms of the work uh, there, one of the things that I'm, I'm sort of proud of is um, helping develop the PEDROOT model. Because at the time we were doing uh, the the extension of the DLR um, to bank. And there was sort of debate about whether or not it should go to bank or whether it should connect into Cannon Street or other places. And, and the key thing there was to understand, well, what was the impact on, on the station design? And so since we model vehicles travelling on road networks, why couldn't we model people walking around stations? So we developed a pedroot model. And then that became sort of a tool for sort of station modelling. And then we, 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 we did it for that. We also applied it, remember, for Victoria Station. And you'll see in Victoria Station, um, those little new pathway things were developed and barriers were put across the station platforms to try and help solve some of the, the congestion that occurred. There were sort of short-term fixes. But that was, that was all through that um, coming up with pedestrian modelling stuff. But the, but the, the really, really good stuff was... Um, I'll tell you, I, I enjoyed doing all the sort of transport strategy work we did at Halcrows. So transport strategy for Wickham, for Ellsbury, various other towns, for um, for the southeast airports. Because the good thing about consultancy is you, is you also cover, you know, 
a big range of different sort of like topics in different areas. So I think I think I've just been lucky um, with the exposure, which is why I would absolutely advocate the sort of career I've had to to anyone interested um, vaguely in in engineering and 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 sort of society. So in 2016, you were named as one of the top 50 influential women in engineering. How do you hope your career and experiences will inspire other women in the industry? Well, I, I, I know that sort of it was, it's, it's quite nice sort of retiring because people write all these nice things to you about sort of like uh, you, you inspiring them. So it, it's sort of really, really rewarding to get feedback from people who've said, you know, because you did X, that's encouraged me to do X as well. Um, so, I, so I hope that sort of people can see that you can, you can make it certainly as a woman. And, and I think people have seen that because there are many more women in roles that I have, um, have, have had, and I say many more women at TfL in senior roles who uh, feel that they can um, aspire to those roles and not just aspire them, but, but get them. Um, and I think the other thing that I've tried to encourage people to do is, is to say what they think. You know, to, to speak to speak up, even if it is the opposite to what everyone else in the room is thinking, is to sort of say what you think and, and be brave enough to to express a view, regardless of the potential outcome. <laughs> so, I, so I know from um, feedback that I've had, people have been encouraged, um, certainly at TfL and, and outside of TfL, and I hope more of that happens, particularly with more and more role models out there for people to follow, which is great. And along a similar line, what, what do you hope your legacy will be at, at TfL? I don't know. Um, what do you hope people at TfL, when they, they talk about Michelle Dix, what do, you, what do you hope they say? I hope they say they like me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think what people, well, I can only go on what people have written in all the cards, um, which is nice, which is, is that, 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 I, that, I'm, that I'm honest, I'm humorous and I'm, encouraging and inclusive so and but uh but also sort of like drive to achieve um plus energetic so so all the ones who wrote things wrote nice things i don't know about the ones who didn't write anything (laughs) (laughs) there's some great qualities i mean if you spend so many hours at work if you don't enjoy it then it's it's quite a challenge isn't it so obviously you're about to become a grandmother and now you're retiring. What are your other plans for the future? Do you think you will stay involved in the industry in some capacity despite your retirement? Well, I did have, and I, and I remember telling Mark this when I went when when I spoke to him. Um, I did have a plan, which was I wanted to open a tea room, um, because we have a we have a sort of like a, a little a little building in the garden, and I did the sort of like the economics of it, um, and if I could just like you know run a tea room from there, it'd be great. And I I I like making cakes and stuff like that but I have to have planning permission for it. And my husband said, if you apply for planning permission for that, I will object. (laughs) He said, I don't want old codgers wandering around our garden. I said, but we're old codgers. So what's the difference? He said, well, I don't want any more. And he said, also, I don't want you like serving the public. I said, I've spent the past 45 years serving the public. So what difference does it make? Um, Anyway, so that plan A is put put on the shelf for the time being, um, uh, but I will continue with some of the things that I'm I'm interested in in transport, and I need to produce a new plan A. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect a tea room to be on the agenda there, but that was really fascinating. 
that's just about all we've got time for today so thank you very much for joining us michelle and we wish you all the very best for your retirement thank you thank you for listening and join us again soon for another episode of the engineers collective the engineers collective is powered by bentley systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organizations of all sizes for the design construction and operation of roads and bridges rail and transit water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings, campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.